I love sports. A couple people talked to me early on in my ministry and they said, Dave, please don't use so many sports illustrations. And I've, I've tried to pull back a little bit, especially over the last few months. But today is Super Bowl Sunday. We're in a series called Game Changer, and I am just going to flow out of my love for sports. You'll have to put up with it for about three to five minutes. This afternoon is the Super Bowl. It's the Cincinnati Bengals against the LA Rams, and both of these teams have been mired in mediocrity. The Cincinnati Bengals haven't been to the Super Bowl in 33 years. This is a huge step for them. The LA Rams, they've been here a few years ago, but recently haven't been that great. From 2004, to two, uh, from 2004 to 2016, a span of 13 seasons, they didn't have one season where they had more wins than losses. Oilers fans can relate to that. And then they decided to do something totally abnormal. They went out and they hired the youngest coach in NFL history. He was only 30 years old when they hired him. When I was 30, I became a lead pastor of a small world church. When this man was 30, he took over a $5 billion franchise. He must have been incredible in those interviews. The first thing you do when you come into a new place, whether you're a boss, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a coach, whatever the case might be, is you set up values. And so this 30-year-old shows up with these LA Rams and he tells them, we're going to have a brand new set of values in this place. The first value is we, not me. It's plastered in their locker room. It's plastered on their playbooks. Everywhere they look, we, not me. The second thing he wanted them to understand is that we are going to be situational masters. Football is the ultimate team game. Everybody has to be on the same page or else it's just not going to work. And the third thing he said, we will be on time. And so you think, okay, here's the values. But we've all seen uh, values played out in different ways where we're in some sort of office and it's taped to the wall and we think, do they really care if they can't even go to Dollarama and put it in a, uh, in a frame? Or we see some uh, cleaning company that's filthy and you think, do they really care about cleaning? So after setting up values, you set up your systems. I heard this great story. Their team captain, a 340-pound lineman, was running out of the shower three minutes until a meeting was to start. He wrapped a towel around his waist. He threw a T-shirt on, grabbed his playbook, and ran to the meeting because he said, if we don't show up on time, if we're one minute late, it's a $10,000 fine. Now, they make a whole lot more money than we do, but $10,000 is still $10,000. Be on time. One of the other values that is on that screen behind me is that it's we, not me. A couple players on the LA Rams are extremely charismatic. They're alpha males, they're millionaires, and they came to the LA Rams and suddenly they were quiet. The coach said, if you're going to play for me, it's team first, and the team has totally bought in. Value, systems, results. 13 seasons in a row, under 500. The first season under Sean McVay, they went from 4-12 and 12 to 11-5. and five. That turnaround is amazing. And the team has bought in. Over the last four seasons, they've made two Super Bowl appearances. I'll be cheering for them this afternoon. I hope they win. But then it gets you to thinking, okay, what does values look like? Most of us have had teachers in our lives who have transformed us. 
And with that right teacher, they've set up the right systems, they've set up the right paradigms, they've built into us so that we become better at that particular subject, that particular sport, that particular hobby, that particular instrument. And we go, wow, they have values, they have systems, and I'm seeing the results. Even in our homes, we have values. Whether we speak about them or not, it impacts how we interact with others, how we spend our time, how we spend our money. Values change things. Here in our church, we have five values. Back in September, we walked through courageous community and spent six weeks about what does it mean to be engaged in deep, life-changing community with one another. One of our other major values is inescapable mission. Last week, we brought in a missionary. We're going to bring another missionary in at the end of March to talk about what it means to see lives transformed. But it's not just what's going on out there. It's also about living it out right here. Do we care enough about our family members, our neighbors, our coworkers, our classmates, the people that we hang out with to say, this is what Jesus is like? One of our other values, I don't talk about it all the time, but I think about it whenever I write a message. Do we believe in a transformational gospel? Do we believe that when we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, he changes everything? If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them up to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew racks in front of you, or else you can grab a phone and download the app. The big numbers are the chapter numbers. Small numbers are the verse numbers. We're going to be in Luke chapter 6, picking up in verse 17, but a little bit of a setup to get us to where we are today. In Luke chapter 3, in the beginning of Luke chapter 4, we have the preparation for ministry. We have Jesus um, getting baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist. We have Jesus being tempted by Satan out in the desert. Uh, Luke chapter 4 and the rest of Luke chapter 5 are all about Jesus' beginning of ministry. He's preaching, he's teaching, he's healing people, he's casting out demons. And then we get to Luke chapter 6, verse 17. And now the teaching ministry begins. This is what we have. And Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all over Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured and all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed them all. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and he said, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. I told a few different people this past week that I was speaking on the Beatitudes, and the result was the same in each of those conversations. Good luck. But there's this joy that's taking place here, and Jesus is doing something incredible. When people come down from a mountain, there's something new that's taking place here. It means that there's a revolution that's about to begin. And you can look through the history of the Bible and even through the history of, of over the last 2,000 years and see that when people come from out of the city back to the city, they're going to do something new. In Exodus chapter 24, right after the Ten Commandments are given, Moses takes a few of his closest disciples and goes up onto the mountain to affirm the covenant come down and tell all the people what's going to happen and what the laws are going to be. 
in the book of 1 Samuel. It's about 30 chapters long. The last third of the book, from chapters 21 to 31, David has been anointed king of Israel, but Saul is still the king. And so Saul starts to chase him, and so David goes into the mountains, and he hides there with a band of merry men, and he recognizes that there will be one day where Saul will die, and then he will come back, and God's kingdom here on Israel will look different. For Jesus himself, the revolution didn't start in the city. How did it begin? People left Jerusalem and went out and talked to John the Baptist, who was talking about them, about a whole new way of life. During the Second World War, of city up in the hills of France called Le Chambon took on 5,000 Jews and said, we are going to show you what love looks like. We are going to embrace you. This is going to be a brand new way of life. And so here Jesus comes down with a mountain and there's three groups of people. There's all of the disciples, probably between 70 and 100 at that time. And then there's the 12 disciples who he's chosen and he has called them apostles. And then there's this great magnitude of people From Tyre and Sidon, we realize it's not just Jews who are here, but Gentiles as well. People who want to hear the good news of Jesus. A Gentile is anyone who's not a Jew. And so they've gathered together to see what is Jesus going to say? What's going to happen? How is this revolution going to start? But allow me to take off my preaching hat for a moment and and put on my teaching hat. Because some of you might be thinking, well, this is the passage about the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are those who... And it is the passage of the Beatitudes, but normally when we're in a Bible study or when we're reading the Bible on our own or on a sermon on a Sunday morning, the Beatitudes come from Matthew and not from Luke. And so there's this difference that's taking place. The sermon in Matthew 5 to 7 is commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And the sermon is Jesus' longest sermon that he teaches in all of the scriptures. In Luke chapter 6, it's not even the longest sermon in the book of Luke And so people often wonder, well, is the passage in Luke and the passage in Matthew the same? And the answer is, we don't know. There's this idea called a higher textual criticism where where we look at it and we think deeply about it. And I probably all of you are at work going, hmm, I wonder if this is exactly the same or if Luke is just changing some words or you're making supper at night and thinking, I wonder if Matthew and Luke are getting this from the same source as uh, one another or why don't Mark and John talk about this at all? You probably don't think about that. You probably just wonder, what is this about? A helpful way of doing um, Bible interpretation is asking ourselves the question, what would we miss if this passage wasn't in the Bible? What would we miss if this passage from Luke chapter 6 wasn't in the Bible? Is it the same sermon that Jesus preached in Matthew 5 to 7? We really don't know. I have my own thoughts, but it really doesn't matter. Why did Luke do something that was different than Matthew? The answer is this. What Matthew is trying to do, pardon me, what Luke is trying to do is help people recognize what the kingdom values are. Teaching hat off, preaching hat back on. When you look at the blessings and when you look at the woes, you recognize that there's four and four. And if you have your Bibles open in front of you, you can see that they parallel one another perfectly. Blessed are those who are poor. Woe to those who are rich. Blessed are those who are hungry. Woe to those who are full. So what is Jesus trying to do? 
And just like that coach of the LA Rams who comes in and says, here's a new set of values, Jesus is trying to help us understand there's different values taking place here. We're gonna do something a little bit different. We're actually gonna start with the world values first. So picking up once again in verse 24. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So let's have an honest conversation here. What makes those values wrong? Woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are hungry. Woe to you who are laughing. That doesn't sound bad. Why is this wrong? Now, most of us in this room might say something like, well, because Jesus says it's wrong. And you're right. At some point, we need to say, okay, Jesus, we believe that you are God. We believe that you are true. We believe that you are the Messiah who's come to save the world. But why? Because if you're over the age of 50, Jesus saying something might be, yep, okay, I agree with that, and we're good, and we'll move on. But if you're over the age of 50, and you have kids that are in their 20s, or you have grandkids who are growing up, they're going to say, that's not enough for me. Why is this wrong? Why is what Jesus is saying wrong? Because it sounds really good to me. I spent some time this past week, and I thought, what if we distill this down to one word? What if we took these woes and we narrowed it down to one word, one idea, one thought to help us understand why this is a bad idea? Woe to you who are rich. Okay, so wealth. Woe to you who are full. I thought, you know, maybe it's not about hunger. Maybe maybe it's more about comfort. Woe to you who laugh. In a word, happiness. Woe to you when people speak well of you. And I said, well, what if we call that an insider? And with those four words on the screen behind me, what stands out to you? What stands out to you about those particular four words? Sounds like the American dream, doesn't it? It's the pursuit of happiness, the pursuit of wealth. Jesus is speaking to a group of people 2,000 years ago, and we can resonate with that today. The older I get, I don't want to get poorer I want to have more money. I know that watching the Super Bowl today on my big screen TV at home is way better than watching the Super Bowl on a 27-inch TV when I was in high school. It's way more fun to have friends that I can laugh with and hang out with than be in a house full of bitterness. And I remember being an outsider. It was called junior high, and those were the three worst years of my life. I like the idea of being an insider. Come on, Jesus, if you want to start a revolution, surely you can think of better values than that. So what is Jesus trying to say? Because it doesn't exactly sound like a compelling argument to give up the American dream. This is what he's saying. Focusing on today means you'll be empty later. It's not a sin to be wealthy. It's not a sin to have comfort. It's not a sin to have happiness. But what Jesus is saying is when you put all of your focus there, all of your effort there, all of your energy, and you forget what's ahead of yourself and what's coming down the pike. Jim Elliott, a missionary in the mid-1900s, is famous for saying he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Woe to the rich is a warning for those who trust in riches more than they trust in God. Woe to you 
who trust in riches more than you trust in God. It's not a sin to be wealthy. It's not a sin to have money. In Luke chapter 19, we're going to be introduced to a man by the name of Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus comes to believe in Jesus, and the first thing he does is he gives away half his wealth. Not only does Jesus welcome him, Jesus says about him, today salvation has come to your house. In Acts chapter 16, we're introduced to a woman named Lydia who's a dealer in purple cloth, meaning she is incredibly wealthy. She houses the Apostle Paul and all of his companions. People believe that she actually financed Paul's missionary journeys all across the ancient Near East and even housed the Philippian church in her home. Her wealth did incredible things for the good news of the gospel. It's not a sin. It's not wrong to be rich. That being said, we cannot and must not overlook that Jesus is giving us a warning. If all our focus is on buying that nicer house, making sure we have a vacation home, making sure our RV is totally up to snuff, making sure that we're wearing the nicest designer clothes because then people will look at us and say, oh, they've got their act together, then we've missed it. Because everything, everything we have comes from God. Our job comes from God. The fact that we happen to be born in Canada or certainly live in Canada now comes from God. Our friends come from God. Our mind comes from God. Our education comes from God. The opportunities to work in the places we work comes from God. All of this comes from God. And God is saying, will you use your wealth? Will you use your comfort? Will you use your life for the glory of God and for the encouragement of others rather than just for yourself? This isn't a sermon about money. But God is asking, where is your heart? And is your heart all about building your own personal kingdom or is your heart based on building the kingdom of God? And if you're not giving currently to the church, maybe it's time. Maybe you start small, it's $20 a month or $50 a month or something like that. And maybe you're thinking, ah, this is just a sermon to get my money. It is not. Last week, we brought in the president of Partners International. He works with indigenous missionaries, people that grew up in Peru, grew up in Egypt, grew up in Iran, people who don't need to learn the culture or learn the language or learn about their neighbors. They already live there. And they're using money to see great things happen in those nations around the world. Perhaps you want to support that. Perhaps you're thinking, God has given me so much. I want to be a blessing to others. And you heard Conrad just a couple minutes ago talk about what's taking place in Hope Mission. And you say, I want to support Hope Mission. We're a church that's passionate about young family ministry. I want to support the Adira Center or the Pregnancy Care Center. I want to get to know my neighbors. And I want them to come into my house so that they can experience what true Christian hospitality looks like. It's not enough simply to be friendly to our coworkers or friendly with our classmates. I want to have real, true, genuine relationships with them. What if we hit really close to home? I think most of us in this building are thrilled that we've become such a multicultural congregation. When's the last time you invited somebody with a different skin color into your house? If you're white, maybe all your friends are white. If you're black, maybe all your friends are black. If you're Chinese, maybe all your friends are Chinese. Are we saying we want to experience courageous community? We want to be wealthier in friendships and relationships because we're getting to know the family of God here at Ellerslie. It's time to invite people into our homes. 
It's time to get to know them, to see them, to hear their stories and to learn more about them. One of the major themes in the book of Luke is this idea of the great reversal. That's the game changer. It's time to flip the script and realize there's something about this upside down kingdom that's worth understanding. The first part is about the world values. The second part is kingdom values. Take a look at verse 20. Who is Jesus talking to? It doesn't say that he's talking to everybody on that mountainside. It says disciples. His focus directed at the disciples. If you want to follow me, this is what you've signed up for. Everyone is certainly welcome to listen, but this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. He lifts up his eyes, he looks at his disciples, and he says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. In the same way that it's not a sin to be rich, it doesn't mean that everybody who is poor gets to come into the kingdom of God, but it makes you so much more receptive to this good news. I forget if it was the summer or the fall, I talked, uh, had a sermon all about money, and someone came up to me afterwards, and he goes, I've got a story for you. And this individual who attends our church used to work for Youth for Christ, and he was placed in the wealthy part of the city. And he said, Dave, I couldn't drum up money. Nobody wanted to come. And the people who offered money said, why do these kids need you? They're driving around in BMWs. They look really happy to me. And he said, but my friend worked on the poorer side of the city. And the money was just pouring in because these kids wanted something. They wanted to hear about Jesus. They wanted to hear about the good news of God's grace. They wanted to see what it meant to be part of the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. The book of Isaiah gives us two beautiful pictures. In Isaiah 55 verse 1, this prophet of the Old Testament is looking at the people who are in front of him and saying, come to me, all you who are thirsty. Come to the waters, you who have no money. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Earlier on in the book, in chapter 25, verse 6, we see this great banquet laid out in which everyone is invited. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich foods for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines. The promise to satisfy the hungry is even better than that. Remember, we worship a holistic God. It's not just about uh, our physical needs. It's also about our spiritual needs. Do you come to church hungry for God? This past Wednesday night, uh, we put together a worship panel, people of different ages and different stages in life, people who attend traditions, people who attend Renew, and we were just having some conversation. And one of the last things that happened that night is one of the ladies said, Dave, I think we need to invite people in. Invite people to experience the good news of Jesus. Invite people to sing the songs. Invite people to really embrace what's taking place. And when you come to church on Sunday mornings, do you come to sing? Do you come to pray during that pastoral prayer? Do you come for community? Do you come to hear the word of God? Blessed are you who weep, for you shall laugh. We're called not just to pursue happiness, but to pursue holiness. And as followers of Jesus, we need to wrestle with what's taking part in this world. We need to recognize that the pornography industry is ruining people's lives and giving them a perverse idea of what sex looks like. 
We need to recognize that human trafficking is a real issue, and what are we going to do about it? We need to recognize that the nuclear family is under attack. It's one of the reasons that we as a church lean into this idea of having a vibrant young family ministry. But then there's this beautiful promise at the end of the Bible in Revelation 21 verse 4 where it says God will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Finally, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did the prophets. There's this great passage in John chapter 9. It's not in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. It's only in the Gospel of John. And Jesus and his disciples are walking along the road, and they see a man who is blind from birth. And Jesus ultimately heals the man. He says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And the man washes, and people start looking at him and saying, hey, aren't you the guy who used to be begging on the roadside? And he goes, yep, that's me. And they said, well, you got to go talk to the religious leaders. Go to the synagogue and tell them this good news. So he walks in, and it happens to be the Sabbath day. And the Pharisees said, who healed you? He goes, well, Jesus healed me. And they said, not possible. That man is not from God because good things like that cannot take place on the Sabbath. And he goes, no, it's true. Jesus healed me. And so they pull in the man's parents and they say to the parents, is this your son? And they say, yeah, but there's this background going on. And at this point in time in Jesus' ministry, anybody who acknowledges that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus might be a good religious person, they expel from the synagogue. This is a big deal. This isn't 2022 here in Edmonton where if you get kicked out of Ellerslie, you can go to a couple churches down the road or 500 other churches in the city. This is the only synagogue in town. Your friends spurn you. You have no religious affiliation it probably impacts you economically and you would have no one to talk to. And so his parents are like, look, he's an adult. You talk to him, ask him to figure it out. And so they go back to this man and they say, has Jesus healed you? Because this man cannot be from God. (laughs) I love this guy. He goes, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know one thing I do know. I was blind and now I see. And they get mad at him and they get angry at him. And this man full of chutzpah, a good Jewish word, says to them, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? And they get furious at him and they cast him out of the synagogue and into the arms of Jesus. And Jesus welcomes him. And he says, blessed are you, for you are an outsider. And you'll be welcomed into the kingdom of God. You remember what happened at the beginning of the message? Three things. Values, system, results. And so Jesus lays out these kingdom values and compares them to the world values. But then you go, well, what's the system? How do we know the system is going to work? And Jesus says, I am the system. I am the example. And Jesus sacrificed what the world so deeply values so that we might receive his eternal values. Jesus sacrificed what the world values so we might receive an eternity of kingdom values. And Jesus says, I am giving up the wealth of heaven so that you might experience the kingdom of heaven. 
Jesus wept over Jerusalem so we might receive eternal happiness. Jesus became the ultimate outsider so that we might become insiders. Jesus is saying, I am the system. Look at me. I'm going to show you how well this works. And do you believe that it's true? Do you believe that the poor will inherit the kingdom of God? Remember, this is physical and spiritual. The reason it's so hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God is because they might boast and say, see, I am self-made and am in no need of God. But for the poor, it's a different matter. For the poor in spirit and the poor in wealth say there is nothing I can do on my own. I cannot purchase salvation. I cannot earn salvation. The only way salvation can happen is if I put my trust in Jesus Christ alone, that I believe that it's Jesus who died for my sins. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Savior of the world. And that's the one who's going to get me into eternal life. Salvation comes through Christ alone. And this is the kingdom value. And this is the kingdom system. The results puts the Super Bowl to shame. And Jesus is saying, all who believe in me will have eternal life, that you might dwell in the kingdom of God, that you will enjoy eternal happiness and satisfaction. You'll rejoice and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. And that's a game changer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Beatitudes. Thank you for the reminder that your kingdom values are so great. Thank you that we have the privilege of knowing you and of learning more about you. And Father, we recognize that the values of this world are enticing. The values of this world seem a lot like that American dream, where if we pursue money, if we pursue happiness, if we pursue comfort, we will be happy. But God, you turn that on its head. You flip it upside down. Forgive us when we pursue things that do not bring you glory. And instead, God, we pray as a church that you would Fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we would see the joy in being poor, for that makes us rich. That we would see the joy in being uncomfortable, because that will bring people eternal comfort. That we would see the joy in weeping now, for then you will bring eternal salvation. And that we would see the results in following you. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.